So as we, as we begin Joshua this morning, I want you to start by thinking about transitions of power. If you read any history at all, whether it's ancient history or even more modern history, the norm has been whenever there's a transition of power for there to be turmoil, right? There's usually some uncertainty. There's often, you know, the younger brother who comes and tries to knock off the older brother who, does, who has the right to the throne or, or some kind of intrigue. And this is true whether you're reading about ancient Rome or medieval England. The norm in history has been when, when some, somebody dies who's a leader, and there's a change, there's probably gonna be a fight to fill the void. I want you to keep that in mind as we come to this part of the Bible. And, and uh, I just wanna start by reading Joshua chapter one, verses one and two, and think about what's going on here. If you're using the Bibles provided, you can find that on page 178. So listen to God's word from Joshua chapter one, verses one and two. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. The crucial thing we see here is that there's this big change happening in Israel's life. As we've just read, Moses has died and Joshua is taking his place. That's a huge change. And Moses was not just any leader, he was the mediator between God and his people. He had led the people out of Egypt. He had gone up to the mountain and received God's law and brought down the tablets of stone. Moses had given them the instructions for building the tabernacle and he was crucial in, in kind of inaugurating the tabernacle and anointing the first priests. He's done all this, and now he's gone. And that's not even the biggest change in the book of Joshua. Israel is going from being this nomadic, wandering people to finally taking possession of the land of Canaan. This is an event that has been hundreds of years in the making. You can go back to Genesis chapter 15, where God promised to Abraham that his descendants would possess this land described between the, the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean Sea. And now this great promise is finally happening. And so we see the book of Joshua is in a sense a, a glorious conclusion to this story of Israel's wandering, and it's a, a new beginning. Israel will no longer be strangers and exiles or slaves in Egypt. They are coming home. And they're going to get to experience what life with God is like in their own land, God's land that he is giving them. And yet, with all that good news, there's also something uneasy about Israel's entry into the land. The first time they had tried or were supposed to have entered the land, they failed. So if you recall, they sent in 12 men to spy out the land of Canaan, but 10 of those 12 came back saying, we can't go in. The, the giants are in the land. There's too many people. They're too mighty. They're stronger than us. There's no chance. And the people of Israel believed the word of those 10 spies and they rebelled. They didn't trust the Lord would give them what he promised. And in response, an entire generation of Israelites are judged and they perish in the wilderness over a 40 year period of time. 
The two exceptions were Joshua, from whom this book is named, and another man named Caleb, who we'll talk about more in the coming weeks. They were the two faithful spies, and they remained steadfast. In the face of these ten naysayers, they said, Let us go up at once and occupy the land, for we are all able to overcome. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 13. We even see Joshua and Caleb as distinct from Moses and Aaron. Both Moses and Aaron sinned in different ways during the wilderness wandering, and they were prevented from entering the promised land. So all that to say, Israel's history with the land is a shaky history. The promise is 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 a great one. They're going to get this land, but there's a big question mark hanging over it. Will they actually take possession of the thing God wants to give them? This book represents a a critical turning point for Israel in, in answering that question. It's easy to imagine that there would have been some succession crisis. You know, why can't Caleb be the guy instead of Joshua or or some son of Moses take and take over? It's also not hard to imagine Israel just kind of giving up and kind of dissolving into the surrounding nations. If we were placing bets, the smart money, the smart play would be against Israel, right? Their history is a history of weakness and rebellion. As we come to the account then of Joshua, we should keep this tension in mind. God has promised big things But will Israel trust him? What do they need to be successful here? How will this rebellious, weak people under a new leader stay together and accomplish this monumental task of taking possession of an inhabited land, driving out those who live there? Keeping questions like that in mind, I think, will help us see how a book like Joshua applies to us. We know ourselves to be also weak and sometimes rebellious. How will we continue trusting God? What do we need to be sustained in our following of God? Well, chapter 1 of Joshua helps us begin to answer those questions. In this chapter, we see two main movements. First, we see God provides and equips his servant. God provides a servant and he equips him. And second, we see God's people trust God's servant. So as we wonder how a weak people can prosper in the midst of a cataclysmic change, these two steps help to answer the question. God provides and equips his servant, and God's people trust God's servant. To see how God provides and equips his servant, let's read the first 12 verses of Joshua. So we'll go ahead and go back to read verse 1 and 2 again, down through verse 12. Listen to God's word. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, 
All the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in, to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is God's word. When we're introduced to Joshua here in Joshua chapter 1, we really don't get any introduction. We're not giving a genealogy or much about his past, and that's largely because we're already supposed to know Joshua. If you've been reading through the first five books of the Bible, you would have already been introduced to it, back in Numbers 13, for instance. And then back in Deuteronomy 31, Joshua was, was commissioned by God to follow Moses as, his, uh, as Israel's mediator. I want to turn back there to, Joshua, to Deuteronomy 31, so it should just be a couple of pages in your Bible. And I want to read starting at verse 4. And what I'm going to read picks up in the middle of a speech that Moses gives to all the people of Israel. And what he's doing here is telling them how they're going to conquer the Canaanites, just like they conquered the people on the other side of the Jordan that Moses has led them through. And then this speech transitions into a speech, not from Moses to all the people, but just to Joshua. So listen to the similarities between these two speeches. Beginning in verse 4, the Lord says, or Moses is saying, And the Lord will do to them, that is, the peoples of Canaan, as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have given you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. What I want you to notice here is how Israel and Joshua are, are intertwined here. The same promises are made to Israel as a whole people, a whole congregation, and then they're repeated to Joshua specifically. And this is crucial for how we understand Joshua and as we go through the whole book of Joshua. The promises God makes to Joshua are ultimately promises 
to the whole people of God, or, or their promises God makes to Joshua so that he can serve the people of God, so that he can give them the land to help them take possession of it, the land that God provided. This shows us something about Joshua. He's, he's not a, a typical ancient political leader. He's not an administrator. He's not a general. Joshua is a representative or a, a stand-in for the whole people of Israel, just like Moses had been. And he's also a representative to the people of God. Just like Moses, Joshua will enjoy a special relationship with God. So just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, after Moses' death, Deuteronomy 34, 9, we read, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. We're to understand Joshua to be a new mediator, a new kind of Moses between God and God's people. What we see God doing in Joshua then is God's providing for himself a servant. And he's providing for Israel a servant like Moses. That's what Joshua chapter 1 emphasizes, that Joshua is like Moses. So verse 3 and 5 both have that phrase, just as Moses. Just as God promised that Moses would, would inherit the land he stepped on, so Joshua will. Just as God promised to be with Moses, God is going to be with Joshua. And so as Israel stands on the brink of the promised land, with their leader dead, the good news here is God has not left them without a mediator. He has called and he's prepared Joshua for this time to lead them into the promised land. And he's not only provided Joshua, but we see that God also equips him. We don't see him equipping him with military training, right? We don't have like a rocky training montage here. But what God provides Joshua with is his word. Joshua, Joshua is equipped with God's word. If we think about Moses and try to zero in on the main thing that Moses did, you could boil it down to this. Moses received God's word and he spoke it to Israel. He did other things as well, but that was the main thing he did. He was a conduit of God's revelation. And so it's a big deal that Joshua begins with a speech from God to Joshua. This is very good news for God's people because even though Moses is dead, they are not left without a way to know God and God's word. God is speaking to Joshua. If the Israelite camp had had like a daily newspaper, the headline should have read, Moses dead, God speaks through Joshua. It's very big and good news. The very fact that God spoke to Joshua was a gift of grace of God to Joshua and Israel. You kind of get a sense of that at the uh, end of the passage we read where the Lord says, have I not commanded you? The fact that you are a recipient of my word is itself a reason to be strong and courageous. So we see that Joshua was going to lead, just like Moses did, under the direction of God himself. When we think about the gift of God's word, we're never simply talking about just the conveyance of information. The word of God does convey information, but 
the word of God is much more than that. It does much more than that. God's word is powerful. It is his life-giving word. By God's word, God's people can come to know God and be saved by him. And what's more, it's through God's word that God makes promises to his people. Promises like the one he made to Abraham to give this land. God makes promises and he always keeps them. And in God's word, we can read the record of the promises and their fulfillment. Even here in Joshua, we're seeing a promise fulfilled that God made. Multiple promises, actually. The promise of land, the promise that Moses would die, the promise that Joshua would succeed him, the promise that God would be with him. We come to know God as we come to know his promises in his word, and we come to know God's commands in his word. Sometimes these commands are more general and applying to everyone, sort of like the Ten Commandments, commands that are generally true for God's people all the time. But sometimes God's commands come in specific direction for a specific situation, like when he tells the people of Israel, march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days and on the seventh day seven times. These are very specific commands of God that God's people in this case desperately needed to know. And it was good that they would have them. We come to know God through his promises and commands. We might even say more specifically, we come to know and find that God keeps his promises as we obey his commands. Isn't that what we see the Israelites finding? As they obey God and go into the land, they find God is with them, that he really does fight for them. They would not have known God's promises had they not obeyed and kept his commands. So let's look briefly at what God promises and what God commands to Joshua. First, his promises. He promises success in the conquest. In verse 3, God makes this promise to Joshua. Every place that, your so- that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised to Moses. So commentator David Frith thinks that this thing about the, the sole of your foot is, is referencing an ancient practice of land transactions, that the guy buying the land would walk its boundaries as a way to kind of finalize the transaction. So that, that may be what's going on here. But the promise is that God is giving this land to Joshua. And then the promise in verse 5 is linked up to it. No man shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. God has commanded Joshua to arise and go in the, in, in the, in, in early in this passage. And then he promises Joshua assurance that as he arises and goes, he will get what he goes to. He will be given all that his foot steps on and no human being can thwart his, his efforts. No man can stand against him all the days of his life. Now, if you look at verse 4, the amount of land described is far greater than anything that Joshua ever could touch sandal to, right? It's a great expanse of land from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. And the point seems to be, though, that God gives abundantly more than he even initially promised to Abraham. And this description seems to anticipate the great lands that King David would one day conquer. The promise of success says to Joshua There is no chance that you will exceed the limits of my generosity. I am giving you more than you can possibly possess and you will succeed in the task I'm giving you. So God promises Joshua 
and by extension, the people success. And then God promises to be with Joshua. God promises that he will have his presence. So look at the end of verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then something similar is repeated in verse 10, the end of verse 10. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God assures Joshua that he will enjoy every benefit Moses enjoyed. God will be with him. It's common for us to pray, God, be with so-and-so. And sometimes that comes across as just a general well-wishing. We don't know what else to pray. It sounds good. And it is good. It's a good thing to pray. But when we look at God's presence in Joshua's life, it, it means something great. In the book of Joshua, God's presence is a promise of God's power and God's wisdom and God's correction. So we see the Lord's presence with Joshua and Israel means that God fights for them. We're going to read accounts of God casting down stones from heaven on Israel's enemies. And the, the narrative is very clear that God killed more of the enemy directly by divine intervention than the Israelites did. God, God's presence is this kind of power. We see also the presence in a, in a protection. When Israel maybe should have been routed by a greater enemy, they aren't. Because God is protecting them. We see the Lord is with Joshua in this provision of guidance. So at times he's going to say, yeah, it's, go, it's good to go ahead and, and keep fighting. Keep pursuing. You're going to win. I assure you, you will. So God gives him that divine direction. That's part of God's presence. And then we also see God's presence in his rebuking of Joshua and Israel when Achan sins. Part of God's presence is his correcting presence. So we see that the Lord's presence is a gift of the Lord's power, the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's grace, and the Lord's fatherly discipline. So yes, you should pray, God be with so-and-so. Just know the glory and the greatness and maybe the, the scariness of what you're praying. You might be praying for that brother or sister to be rebuked in their sin. The promise of success in God's presence, though, can't be separated Israel succeeds because God is with them, right? Joshua and Israel have God's presence, and so they will accomplish the mission God has given them. We see then that God's promises are the ground of his commands. The first command to Joshua, as we've already loaded in verse 2, arise and go, or it's really two commands, arise and go. Moses is dead, so arise and go. And the logic of promise and command is, since God is with you, go. We see repeated in Joshua that God has given them this land to possess, and their implication is, therefore, take it. I've given you the land, now go take it, go possess it. There's a, no a longer string of commands in verses 6 through 8, and I want you to notice here that as God gives Joshua commands, many of the commands are about knowing God's word and obeying his commands. There's like a, a command below the command. So listen to this from Joshua 1, 6 through 8 again. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So the the prime directive to Joshua is know God's word. He was commanded, he, he was to be careful to do all that the law of Moses commanded him. He was to meditate on God's law day and night, like that righteous man of Psalm 1. He was to be sure to stay on the path of obedience. Now, do you notice this, this call of be strong and courageous, which is repeated throughout our text? It comes in relationship to keeping God's command. So we, we often hear this, this, these two commands, be strong and courageous, as kind of a, a pep talk, right? But it's not a pep talk. It's, it's meant to encourage Joshua to stay the course and to know where his strength and courage comes from. What Joshua needed strength and courage to do was to obey God's commands, to meditate on God's law. In the face of battle, in the face of maybe conflicting uh, reports from abroad, Joshua needed more of God's word. Joshua needed to obey God's command. So just to recap where we are, God's great gift to his people as they've lost Moses and as they face this daunting task of conquering Canaan, God's great gift is this man, Joshua. But Joshua's greatness is not that he has a special set of skills like James Bond or James Jason Bourne. Joshua's greatness and his gift to God's people is that he is a man of God's word. That he has God's promises and God's commands. And again, that most basic command of Joshua is, devote yourself to my word. Meditate on it. Be filled with it. God's great provision for his people, the thing that God's people need, is a servant who believes God's words, who is ruled by God's word, and who speaks God's word. That's what God's people need when they're facing cataclysmic changes in their lives. A servant who believes the promises of God, who obeys the commands of God, and who proclaims God's word. We see that Joshua is this kind of obedient servant in what he does in verse 10 and 11. After hearing God's commands and promises, he immediately commands the people. And in Joshua's command, we hear both the promises of God and the command of God. He says, prepare to take possession of the, what the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You have both promise and command there. God's giving it to you, now take it. And we see here the greatness of God, God's word is because God is so great. He's the kind of God who, who has land to give and gives it. He promises and provides. And this truth about God is revealed to us in his word. We receive it by faith. Joshua proves to be a man of God's word. He serves the people as one who believes and obeys God. It's interesting to, to watch the trajectory of Joshua's life that he's introduced here as Moses' apprentice, right? Moses is called the servant of the Lord and Joshua his apprentice. 
And when Joshua's death is recorded in 24, chapter 24, Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. He serves God and he serves God's people as one who believes and obeys God. That's a good place for us to stop and to think for a minute. Do we recognize the gift of God's word? You may see God here speaking directly to Joshua, and this happens a lot in the Old Testament, and you think, man, I've never had an experience like that where I've heard an audible voice of God telling me what to do, reminding me of his promises. We don't have that experience. But it's worth remembering what we've just studied in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And note that Joshua is considered the, one of the former prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Brothers and sisters, we have something better than the word God spoke to and through Joshua. We have the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God speaks to us through Jesus Christ. He speaks to us the good news of Christ's saving work. We can say that in Christ we find the ultimate Joshua, the servant who believed God's word, obeyed God's word, and proclaimed God's word perfectly. And we can be saved through faith in Christ because Jesus is the perfect man of God's word and the perfect son of God. And what's more, if we want to know this Christ, we encounter him through the scriptures. The scriptures of Joshua chapter 1 and all the scriptures, they all point to Christ. So if you have the scriptures, you have a gift Do you treasure that gift? Are you paying attention to the scriptures? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you know that the most important things you can know in the whole world are found in the scriptures. They're found in God's word. If you would know God and be saved by him, study God's word. A good place to begin is with one of the Gospels. So read through the Gospel of Mark or Gospel of John. These are in the first four books of the New Testament. If you seek Jesus in God's word, you will find him. And if you'd like to be helped in studying God's word, one of the pastors here, it's one of the Christians here, would be happy to read God's word with you and help you to understand it. Please talk to somebody after the service about doing that, if that's something you're interested in. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ... You need to ask yourself, are you giving yourself to knowing God's word? God's word brings life to his people. And so when we're facing challenging circumstances, big changes in our lives, whatever it is, we especially need God's word. Now, that's not because God will answer every question we have. That's not because we're going to find a special promise from God's word that we're going to have success in our endeavor. No, the reason we need God's word is because in God's word, we come to know Christ. And in Christ, we find a sure and steady anchor of our souls. In Christ, who's revealed to us in scriptures, we come to know the God who makes promises and keeps them. 
It's Christ who preserves us when life goes upside down. In Christ we know that our our ultimate problem has been dealt with on the cross. And in Christ we hear God's commands and find joy in obeying them. Joshua and Israel would find God faithful as they obeyed him and entered the land. And the same dynamic is work at work in our lives. As we obey God, we find God keeps his promises. So as you love the difficult person in your life, you will come to know more of God's love for you. As you endure in prayer with that impossible situation, you will know that God has endured with you and been faithful to you. As we forgive others, we grow in knowing the joy of God's forgiveness for ourselves. We are equipped to obey God by knowing God's word and believing his promises, and we come to know God's promises as we obey. So are you seeking with your whole life to know God and his word? At this time of great change in Israel's life, God provided a servant, and God equipped that servant with his powerful word. And that was Israel's hope as they entered the promised land, that that Joshua would remain faithful and that they would would submit to God's word as revealed through Joshua. Our hope is much the same, but our focus is on this greater servant. Through Jesus Christ, we come to know God, and through Jesus Christ, we also are equipped by his word. This leads us to our second point, the second movement of the chapter God's people trust in God's servant. So let's begin reading there in verse um, 12 through the end of the chapter. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your word, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So this is the geography portion of our sermon. You need to remember the the way that Israel enters the promised land is from the east. They kind of go around underneath the land of Canaan and they come to the east so they can cross over the Jordan from east to west. The main portion of the land God promised them is to the west of the Jordan River. But these three tribes of people that God mentions here, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, refers to these three groups of Israel who Moses had promised some land on the east east side, I mean on the west, yeah, east side of the Jordan. So, so they've already really taken over their land. They, through Moses' leadership, they've conquered the kings that were there, and they're there. They're in their inheritance. And they, they you know, you could imagine, maybe wanted to stay there with their people, you know. And now Joshua comes, and he says, all right, 
Your wives and your children and your livestock, they can stay where they are because they're home. But your mighty men, your men of valor, your armed, trained soldiers, they've got to go with your brothers and they've got to cross the Jordan and fight until your brothers have achieved what you've achieved, until your brothers have conquered the kings on the eastern or the western side of the Jordan. So the, the important thing to note here is that these, these tribes had a lot of self-interest in remaining, right? It would have been really easy for them to, to buck up against Joshua's command, right? Joshua's the, the new upstart. And here he is throwing his weight around saying, you've got to go there and you've got to stay here. They could have said, you know, maybe just, just send us a nice note when you set up the tabernacle and we'll come for worship. But Joshua is faithful to obey Moses' command and he tells them that they're to go and accompany their brothers. And then in verse 16 through 18, the big news is their response. They agreed to obey his command. So this is a crucial test of Joshua's authority. It's a crucial test of Israel's submission. And these people pass the test. They agree to obey Joshua in all that Joshua's commanded him to do. It's clear that they regard him with the same authority as Moses had. Even more important, it's clear that they regard Joshua's words as speaking the very words of God, right? That's, that's the significance of them saying anyone who disobeys should be put to death. That's, that's really only, something, only a kind of weight that God's word carries. So they're recognizing Joshua's authority in, in, their, in their submission and their, their obedience here. It's also noteworthy that they repeat God's words to Joshua too. They say, be strong and courageous. And they say, may the Lord be with you. By these words, they're affirming Joshua's special status, not just his authority, but that Joshua has these promises of God. These are kinds of confessions of faith in God's work and in God's work specifically through Joshua. So they are honoring God's servant. They're recognizing that God's promises for God's people in some sense come through Joshua. In short, we see here God's people trust God's servant. They recognize him they recognize God's promises to him, and they recognize his authority to give commands. They recognize that their welfare and Israel's welfare is inextricably tied up with Joshua's success. As Joshua believes and obeys and receives God's promises, so Israel will be blessed by God. This relationship between Joshua and the people here is meant, I think, to show us that this, this book of the Bible is not just to give us a good example of, of some courageous people, of a good leader. No, I think this is meant to show us something about Jesus and how people today are saved. We are not saved, of course, by our trust in Joshua, but we are saved by our trust in in Christ, the greater servant Christ that, that God has provided. Joshua was the servant of God that God provided for Israel and equipped with his word. But Joshua's ministry is limited by his own mortality. Right? We, we have a death story for Joshua and Joshua did not rise from the dead. But we see that Jesus is the ultimate servant, the servant God provides and the servant God equips I wonder if you've ever considered the way Jesus 
was equipped by God. How Jesus was full of God's word, even from an early age. What was he doing when, when Mary and Joseph accidentally left him in Jerusalem? He was in the temple amazing the scholars with his knowledge of God's word. Jesus is also anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He says that his food is to do the Father's will. He says that he, he came to only preach and to only do the things that his Father had given him to do. And as part of his ministry, he preached God's word. Remember when he preaches from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Galilee. Have you ever considered how Jesus was a student of God's word? He was equipped with God's word. He was a man of God's word. And Jesus lived under the authority of God's word to such a degree that Jesus died on the cross in submission to God's command. In the great and glorious irony of the gospel, Jesus was more perfectly submitted to God's word than Joshua was, but Jesus was treated like a Canaanite, like an enemy of God. And that's why Jesus' provision is greater than Joshua's. Jesus actually paid the price our sin deserves. And so he does so in such a way that sinners can benefit from Jesus' work. And so the big question for us is, are we trusting in God's servant? Are we like Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, trusting in God's servant? Do you trust in his work for you? Do you believe that you have rebelled against God? And because of that rebellion, you deserve God's anger forever. Do you believe that Jesus died to pay your sin's price? The gospel promises that anyone who believes in Christ will be saved and will become part of God's people. Is that where you're placing your hope? Are you trusting in the servant God has provided for his people? And do you recognize Jesus' authority? When Joshua gave that command to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they had a a lot of self-interest again, right? They could have disobeyed, but they quickly obeyed, fully obeyed. How do you respond when God's authority clashes with your self-interest? Do you gladly obey? Or is your instinct to resist? Do you find yourself saying, Jesus, surely you don't want me to do something that's, that's risky, something that exposes me to sacrifice or pain or loss? The ancient Israelites we read about here in Joshua chapter 1, they, they recognized that God's blessing came in following Joshua. This led them to, to leave their families and their livestock exposed to whatever enemies lie to the east of the Jordan. But they trusted God and obeyed him. They recognized his authority, even if the authority led them into the teeth of angry Canaanites. Are you so devoted to Jesus? Are you convinced that God's blessing comes through Christ? And does that faith show up in your actions? Are you willing to sacrifice and endure loss for the sake of Christ? Again, going back to our study of Hebrews, we know that our, our brothers back in who received that letter, they, they suffered loss, the plundering of their property. 
They associated with those thrown in prison. Some of them were thrown in prison. All for the sake of Christ. And the message of Hebrews is they were right to do that. They were not fools to follow Christ to prison. Our hope is bound up with Christ. He is the servant God provided for us. He is the one equipped with God's word for our sake. And he has served us in a way that Moses and Joshua can never serve us. He lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God's word. And so his death paid the price our sins deserve if we trust in him. So is your faith in Christ the servant that God provided? Let's pray. Our Father, as we think about this question, is our faith in Christ, we must confess the ways we have fallen into unbelief, the ways we have avoided painful obedience. We confess the ways our minds wander away from you or we seek other saviors. But we thank you that Christ died even for those sins. We thank you for your provision for your provision of your word, this word about Christ, this word that proclaims salvation and forgiveness and joy in your kingdom. We pray for your help to live as servants of Christ. We pray that you would help our church as a whole be a reflection of Christ's glory for the sake of lost people being saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.